The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Um, This is the fourth year of our Gift of Exoneration series on PIs Declassified, and today my guest is Ron Dalton. In 1988, Ron experienced a horrible nightmare. Not only did his wife die unexpectedly, but Ron was charged and convicted of her murder. And he's today here to talk about it in person. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Thanks for being on the show. It's, this is so important. At the time of the wrongful conviction, um, it was in Newfoundland, Canada, where Ron and his wife lived. And if you're having trouble picturing where Newfoundland is located. Uh, it's a large and beautiful island on the east coast of Canada. So, Ron, what was your life like, your life like in 1988? What was going on just, in your life? Just in, just in terms of picturing where Newfoundland is, if the people have a, a better idea where Alaska is on the, uh, on the upper left-hand side of the, the globe, uh, mm-hmm. Newfoundland is the opposite corner on the right-hand side. Okay. But back in back in 1988, I was a 32-year-old bank manager. My wife and I had been married for 11 years. We had three small children. Normal normal day-to-day existence, you know, centered around work and, and the children. Mm-hmm. Uh, in August of that year, uh, uh, my wife choked to death on some cereal at home. In the evening, we were sitting around watching the evening news. The three children were in bed. We called the uh, the ambulance they rushed her off to the hospital and unfortunately in in a small community in the summer in Newfoundland uh, there was no emergency room doctor present uh, mm. there was a student doing a summer locum who had never intubated a live patient and there was a bunch of medical misadventures that night and the upshot of it all is my wife passed away oh my goodness uh, added added to that uh, being in a small jurisdiction we have provinces versus states uh, in Canada, but the population of Newfoundland is about a half a million people spread over a, a fairly large area. The small town we were living in had never had a murder trial. They had one homicide about ten years about ten years prior mm-hmm. to my wife passing, and they tried that in the next town. But they they also didn't have any uh, medical expertise in terms of forensic pathologists or. Uh, much experience dealing with sudden, unexplained deaths. Mm-hmm. So the following day after my wife passed away, uh, the local hospital pathologist uh, performed an autopsy, uh, thought he had a homicide on his hands, and, and told the police, you better go speak to the husband. And 
the police immediately left the autopsy room and came to my house, and, and within 24 hours of my wife's death, uh, I was arrested and, and charged with her murder. Now, was that Dr. Hutton? Hutton, Hutton yes. Yeah, because yeah, I, I was reading his testimony before the, what is it, the Lammer Com- Commission? The Mayor Inquiry, yes. The Mayor Inquiry. I was reading because... Um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, because after you got out of prison, uh, you asked for a public inquiry. So there was a the Lammer uh, inquiry, and he testified that he was really surprised when the police arrested you that he wasn't through with his, his examination yet. Well, that's uh, that was his testimony then. That now was his testimony, testimony then. Original okay. trial uh, ten years prior to that, and and the police notes that were made at the time suggest that his his words literally were, I guess you'll have to go and speak to the husband. Yeah, although that's a little different than go arrest the husband, you know. But when <laughs> when we, uh, eventually when I, uh, I spent um, eight and a half years in a maximum security prison yeah. before my conviction was overturned, and it was overturned on the basis of fresh forensic uh, evidence, mm-hmm. we went around the world and, and got eight or nine leading experts, the people who literally wrote the textbooks. We we got a couple from the United States. We had them from the United Kingdom, from Wales, England, and Canada, right. who all testified that the original pathologist was wrong, that this was not only a, a crime that I hadn't committed, it was not a crime. My wife, unfortunately, died accidentally, and there was no, and it, and no it was crime based at all on, committed. But, yeah, it was based sorry? on fi- the serial actually being in her larynx, right? That was, that was one of the findings, yes, but yeah. there was a number of other other findings. Uh, unfortunately, what we've seen happen in not only my case, but other cases where you have uh, uh, experts with very little background or professed experts, they'll tend to overinterpret. Right. Uh, in my case, the uh, uh, Dr. Hutton gave the opinion that this lady had been strangled by a single right hand and uh, you know, a number of, of overinterpretations. He, uh, he, he testified at the original trial that he had a bit of Quincy in him, I think was his exact words. A bit of Quincy, like the, Klugman, the TV Quincy star show, Quincy. You know, 25 or 30 years ago, he yeah. thought that his job was not only to perform an autopsy and give some anatomical findings to assist the investigation, he thought his job was to go out and solve a crime. I see. Hmm. Scary. Very, very scary. And it, it, it is happens, very frightening. And it's one of the, uh, I've been involved in doing some wrongful conviction work uh, since I was released from prison which is almost 20 years ago now. I, I was released in in 98. But the, one of the common things that leads to wrongful conviction, of course, is junk science mm-hmm. and the over-interpretation, inexperienced uh, pathologists who don't know what they're doing. Uh, also, you know, hair microscopy. Uh, one time we would put a couple of hairs under a microscope and somebody would give the opinion that they look similar and somebody would get convicted. And we right. know we know now that un- unless you have some root material with a hair to do some DNA analysis, that uh, saying two hairs look similar is, is really meaningless. Yeah. Well, all you're involved. Junk I'm science sorry. like that. I'm sorry. Say that again. Uh, I say there's there's all kinds of junk science like that that are among the leading causes of wrongful conviction. Yeah, for sure. And uh, so you're involved now with the. Um, Wrongful Conviction Group in Canada. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, they they weren't directly involved in overturning my my own wrongful conviction, 
But when I was released from prison, I was looking around for a way to give back a little bit. I don't do this on a full-time basis. I volunteer with the, with the organization. They're the only group in Canada that has uh, successfully worked towards exonerations. There are a couple of small innocence projects located at universities and one of the journalism schools in Canada who work on cases and students do some review and, and they help do some investigative work. But uh, our association is the only group who's actually had a couple dozen exonerations over the last 21 years that they've existed. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted? Uh, of the Wrongly Convicted, yes. Uh, the wrong, rather the wrongly an, convicted. An, awkward, an awkward acronym uh, <laughs> go by the name of, of AIDWIC. Actually, we're, we're in the process now of, of uh, updating our name a little bit and, and calling ourselves Innocence Canada, which is a little oh, more descriptive nice. of the work that we do, but also reflective of the national nature of the work we do. Uh, I'm sure you're aware there are innocence projects in the U.S., including yes. a couple in California, yes. uh, who yes, do a lot I, of great work, but they I tend to do it on a state-by-state <laughs> state basis. Right. Now, for better or worse, uh, Canada tends to operate more nationally, but for comparison purposes, you know, California has a population in the 39 million range. The mm-hmm. total population of Canada is about 36 million. Right. And we're a larger geographic area than the United States. Oh, that's true. So we, we're spread out much thinner uh, across a, a bigger area. And you're currently a co-president of this association? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yeah. And you are the only exoneree that's on the board? Uh, currently the only exoneree on, on the board, yes. How important is that, though, Ron? I mean, that sounds very important to me to have uh, somebody who's actually been exonerated functioning on a board like that one because it's such a much different perspective. It, it is. It is a different, a different perspective, and uh, uh, sadly, some of the cases that I'm that the group is working on, uh, I've actually served time with some of those individuals, which is how slowly some of these cases actually work their way through the system. Uh, in Canada and, and uh, in many jurisdictions around the world, including a lot of the U.S. jurisdictions, there is no formal mechanism within the Canadian Criminal Code for overturning wrongful convictions. Mm. Uh, the, the legislators who who pass the laws, you know, that form our, our national criminal code, never really contemplated mistakes. Of course, and that's one of the big, <laughs> that's one of the biggest things that we run up against. There is no mechanism to have these things overturned apart from going out and literally proving the person's innocence, which is a fairly high standard to do, particularly on some of the cases. We've worked on cases that are 50 years old, mm-hmm. but a lot of the cases that we work on are 15 and 20 years old. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to go back and, and prove someone's innocence. Uh, some of the low-hanging fruit or the easy cases are the DNA cases where you may be able to prove that you have the wrong individual, but a lot of our cases don't lend, or lend themselves to that. True. True, particularly if there's a, a some kind of an eyewitness testimony. Um, eyewitness testimony is, is mm-hmm. notoriously unreliable, which is is counterintuitive. You know, you think that if if you and I see something that the, what we saw is, is very accurate, but we know, uh, you know, through testing and, and historically that that's often not the case. In the True, same way you know, that confessions, so many, we, we've overturned a number of convictions uh, in Canada and the U.S. as well, of course. Uh, where confessions have been involved, and you think somebody confesses to a crime, it's pretty much a slam dunk. But the reality is there's a lot of reasons that people will confess to something that they haven't done. 
And many of the cases that have been overturned with either a confession or a DNA exoneration have been based on eyewitness testimony, which is just very scary. Well, in, in, in particular, the, uh, there, there's a subset of eyewitness uh, testimonies, the jailhouse informant, mm-hmm. which is really notoriously uh, unreliable. You know, people are trading, trading lies sometimes for favors and well, and of course, uh, as as we as you know, you know John Artis, who was my guest last week. I do week. know John. Yes. Yeah, uh, he was. There was immense pressure put on him to turn against uh, Reuben Carter. So uh, all, that all John ever had to do was was just say, "Yeah, Reuben did that," or "I saw Reuben do it," or "I heard Reuben say he did it." He could have walked away, and John just happened to be a solid stand-up kind of guy who said, "My mommy and daddy didn't raise me to tell lies." Right. Right. All right. Let's so, so, Ron. Let's go back to what happened with you. Uh, so, so I imagine that you thought, "I'm innocent. I'm going to be shown. The jury's going to believe me that I didn't do this." You must have been just shocked when you when they came back with a conviction. Well, I, I had no experience with the criminal justice system. Now I was uh, university educated and uh, and uh, you know a bank manager in the local community, so I wasn't. Uh, totally naive about the world or anything, uh, and, and I only say that because a lot of the clients that we deal with are marginalized or they're young people who don't have much uh, education or or experience with life, so they're even easier to railroad. Mm-hmm. But in, in my case, certainly my lawyers were telling me that uh, uh, this is all silly and the law go away and there's nothing to worry about, and I had three small children to... Uh, look after for a year and a half. I was out on bail for a year and a half between my wife's death and my trial, which turned out to be quite a blessing uh, that I didn't realize at the time. Uh, but mm-hmm. when I was convicted and, and sentenced to a life sentence and sent away to a maximum security prison, at least I had had that year and a half to get my children adjusted to uh, life without their mother. Uh, we were living with my oh, sister sure. and, and her husband and their three children. and uh, My own children were established in school, they were in the same small community where my wife and I came from, so there was a bit of stability there because they lost their mother one year, of course, and then lost their father the next. And for the next 10 years, then my sister and her husband and uh, our extended families from both sides had to pitch in and, and help raise those those children. But for me, it, it uh, I was able to maintain contact. Uh, I would only see my children once a month, I suppose, on average over an eight-and-a-half-year period that I was in prison. But that was more than a lot of the people that I served time with had. But it also gave me a focus beyond the prison walls. People can get lost inside of prison. There's a lot of of just survival things that go on in there. You know, making your way through a maximum security prison on a day-to-day basis can require a lot of your time and attention. And you can get wrapped up in all kinds of the games that go on in there, whether it's drugs or or just fighting with the administration or beating your head against the proverbial brick wall, trying to get your case resolved. Mm-hmm. But I was able to look a little beyond that. Uh, the hardest thing for me in, in serving time was to accept some of the unfairness of it all. And, and I, don't, I never came to accept it, but I came to realize I couldn't do much about most of it. So I had to pick right. my battles and, and focus. Interesting. How, and Ron, how old were your children when your wife passed away? Uh, we, our oldest son was nine. We had a six-year-old daughter, and uh, our youngest son was 18 months old. So the baby, of course, who just turned 29 last month, uh, 
doesn't recall his mother at all. That six-year-old little girl uh, has some faint recollections, and, and the nine-year-old remembers a life before all of this. Mm-hmm. And how do you explain to your children that you're, you're convicted of murdering their mother? Uh, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to do that. Uh, the longest night of my life, of course, my wife was taken to the uh, emergency room uh, just before midnight and was declared uh, deceased an hour later. So I was back at home, you know, two thirty or three o'clock in the morning, sitting up all night with a, a couple of family uh, friends, uh, trying to figure out how to explain to a six and a nine-year-old that their mother, oh, who had been sure. alive and well when they went to bed the evening before, was was now deceased. And uh, you know that that was difficult enough. Uh, my right. poor six-year-old daughter, you know, didn't uh, didn't really comprehend the, uh, the the whole concept of her mother not being around and uh, kind of laughed. She thought her brother and I. Uh, her older brother and I were, were teasing her and, and making this up when we told her at first. And then a half an hour later, she was asking what the, what was for breakfast, you know. Yeah, Which, yeah. One of those moments, there's a few moments that crystallize in your mind, but that was one of those moments for me that uh, uh, kind of mm. made me shake my head a little bit and realize that life goes on one way or the other and there's things that have to be done and you have to roll up your sleeves and get to it and get at it. What a blessing that you had that year and a half with them, though. That's um, It really turned out to be quite a blessing, and, and as yeah. I say, I wasn't uh, that cognizant of it at the time, because when I went off to trial, uh, I was expecting to come back. My, sure. My, my trial ended on the, in the middle of December 1989, and of course I expected to be home with my family for, for Christmas, and just never came back for the next 10 years, basically. But I, I realized afterwards I ran into a lot of people in similar circumstances who just never saw their families again, and that was difficult for them to live with. That was people who, who were guilty as well as people who weren't. There's a lot of horrific uh, situations. You know, you get those crimes of passion where somebody uh, walks in uh, and, and their wife is in bed with somebody and they, they react uh, and, and mm-hmm. end up killing one or two mm-hmm. people, and, and all of a sudden everybody's lives are changed forever. Those are people who for have sure. And were you were you taken immediately into custody uh, the day of the verdict? Yes. So you just you went to court that day and you never came back. That's correct. Yeah. Not not for the next uh, nine years. I didn't. For the next nine and years. Even then, when my conviction was overturned in uh, in ninety uh, eight, uh, nine years after the fact, I still had a retrial to do. I wasn't declared okay. innocent. They just said that the the original trial was was flawed, and and there was a lot of information suggesting that if the jury had it, that I may not have been found guilty. Of course, so we'll do this all over again. That's a lot hanging over your head. We quite, quite we need bit. to take so a break. While, Ron, I was, while I was out of while I was out of prison in '98, uh, I still wasn't free to pick up the pieces and move right. the children back in with me and carry on a normal life, go back to work, and that sort of thing. I still had a couple of years of uh, of legal proceedings hanging over my head. So I was out on bail yeah. for another couple of years then, and I was eventually okay. uh, exonerated, acquitted in uh, June of 2000. But that's uh, a dozen years after my, my wife passed away. To put it in perspective, our six-year-old daughter had just graduated kindergarten the year her mother died. Uh-huh. And I made... I made her high school graduation by about two hours. Oh, my goodness. 
I was exonerated on a on a Saturday, about a thousand miles away from from oh. where my the children were living. Wow! And it took me a day and a half to drive there, and I got to her high school graduation a couple hours before beforehand, and and that was the only time in twelve years that she was able to look out in the audience and have one of her parents there. Oh, that so was people, you know, people ask me, well, what did you lose and what did you miss along the way? And I always uh, uh, told that out as an example because people can relate to what what changes are go on between a six-year-old and, and an 18-year-old, all their high school and all their elementary school and all the things that go on, you know, all the exactly. sporting events and all the family events that you miss. Now she wasn't the only one that missed that, of course. My sons did as well, and yeah. and the rest and of the family. My, my sister, my sister and, and brother-in-law, and, and God bless them for raising those uh, children for ten years when I wasn't around. But right. my sister, in particular, will tell you that every family gathering, every birthday, Christmas, uh, whatever the celebration was, there was always that feeling of emptiness. You know, there's always somebody missing. For sure, Ron. We have to take a quick break. We have so much sure. more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. I'll be here. All right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Ron Dalton was wrongfully convicted of the murder of his wife, Brenda, and he's here to talk about it. And, Ron, you were just describing how hard it was to miss miss all of your children's activities as they were growing up. And your daughter, the last time um, the, when, you went at, when you were convicted, she was six and, and entering kindergarten. And when you got out, she was graduating from high school. 
that's a vivid comparison. A vivid comparison. It, it so, always summed it up rather neatly for me because say people can relate to uh, uh, those dozen precious years. Of course, time is one of those things that no one ever gets back. Now, yeah. the separation from my children I always described as the best and worst part of being incarcerated. Uh, the worst, obviously, because I was used to being with them on a day-to-day basis and seeing them in a prison visiting room uh, once a month just wasn't nearly the same. But right. the best thing was it gave me that focus beyond the prison walls that, that helped uh, you mm. survive you know, nine or ten years of what goes on in, inside maximum security prison. And that doesn't mean they're horrible uh, day-to-day violent places, but there are unpleasant things that happen. Just your loss of freedom, of course, is, is difficult to deal with. And after that, the separation from the children, your loss of freedom, for me, the uh, enforced uh, idleness was, was a bit of a burden. I was used to getting up and going to work every day, and, and my life had some sort of a routine and, and a meaning, and I found myself with an awful lot of time on my hands. Right. Was that, and was not that a lot the, of opportunities to put it to a productive use. Was that the worst? What was, the, what was your worst experience in your eight and a half years in prison? Well, I, I uh, tend to look back on the whole thing and, and say I had my biggest loss up front in the wife uh, dying mm-hmm. back in August of 1988. So before I ever got to prison, I had already put in the, the worst night of my life. My wife passed away, and then I had to tell my, my children that she had passed away, and, and we were making funeral arrangements in the midst of all that, and I was charged with a, a murder that hadn't happened, mm-hmm. and it went downhill from there. But But the worst was up front, really. Uh, the prison experience itself, the uh, separation from my family, of course, which is understandable. That was, was probably the biggest issue. But the enforced idleness took some getting used to and mm-hmm. the uh, the acceptance that things uh, in a prison system and, and in the judicial system are not entirely fair. Uh, I wasn't so naive as, as to look at the, rose, the world through rose-colored glasses and think everything was perfect, but in my world before all this, things generally went along the way they should. Mm-hmm. If people borrowed money from the bank, usually they paid it back. Right. It didn't always happen that way, but you know, the things tended to work out. You went to school, you studied hard, you got a job, uh, you got married, you had a family. Things were progressing along fairly normally. And that all gets turned upside down when, when something like this happens. You lose faith in, in the justice system, certainly. Probably uh, you nothing to, you will ever regain, right? You'll never trust uh, the Unfortunately, it, it's one of those things that I've probably permanently lost. Uh, mm-hmm. The sad reality is that if somebody breaks into uh, into my home tomorrow, I'm less likely to call the police than another citizen might be, mm-hmm. which unfortunately is, is a, you know, something that I've lost that I've probably never gained back. I've, I've seen too mm-hmm. much to have full faith and confidence in it. I, I know how, uh, how fragile and... and uh, prone to mistake it is, and that's probably the kindest interpretation to put on it. Some yeah. of this is more malicious than that. Yeah, what what was an average day like while you were in prison? Uh, we, while I was there, one, one of the uh, things that, that I was asked to do, uh, I guess perhaps because I had a bit more education and, and, uh, uh, than most of the, of the other lifers, uh, was, was chair of the lifers group in, inside the prison I spent most of my time in. And one of the little projects that we did for a couple of years was bring in young offenders. And it wasn't a scared straight, let's yell at you for an hour and scare you uh, type of program, but we would sit these 15, 16-year-old 
kids down who were in the, in the juvenile custody. A lot of it was just open group homes, you know, where they slept there at night, went back and forth to school. But one of the scariest sessions we did with those young people was we typed up a list of the daily routine in prison. You know, the lights come on at 7, at 7.15, the doors open for breakfast at 7.30, you have to be someplace else at uh, at 7.45, everybody's back in their cell to do a count to make sure nobody's missing, and you go to uh, to your work at whatever location you're at, if you're lucky enough to be working at all at 8, and you're back at, uh, at 11.30 for another count before you go to the chow line, and, and all of these little things that... Mm. Uh, Every 15 or 20 minutes were, were happening in, in the day, you know, from 7 in the morning until 11 o'clock at night when you were locked up for the night. And, uh, and for these young kids, of course, who like to have a little bit of independence and, and freedom and don't like to be told what to do, when to do, or what to wear, and what to eat, that was pretty frightening right. for them. Yeah, it would as, be frightening for all of us. As, and and we, were, we were grown-ass men, for lack of a, of a better word, going through mm-hmm. all of that. And, and 15 and 16-year-olds didn't care to be told what to do, when to do it, and, and how to like it. So just the, the routine is very monotonous. Well, and also the way you're treated. I mean, personally, the way you're treated. You're, you're put down, you're denigrated. Isn't that true? I mean, you have, uh, there's, there's no respect. No, there's, there's a, the- I recall one incident. Uh, there, there's you know a couple of bulletin boards up within a prison, and they're behind glass uh, or plexiglass. We don't use much glass in the maximum security prison, but they're yeah. they're encased in a in in plexiglass someplace, and, and there's notifications about this, that, or the other thing coming up. And one was a some sort of a seminar about prisoners' rights or something. And uh, one of the staff members clearly, because it was behind the the plexiglass of this locked case, had wrote written on the on the bottom of this notice that came out from the federal prison system someplace that had to be posted in in all the prisons had wrote prisoners have no effing rights. Mm-hmm. And, and that sentiment was there. Uh, that wasn't universal. You met some people who were simply there to uh, to have a paycheck and, and went about their, their day-to-day business and, and tried not to create problems. But, of course, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of injustice that goes on. It's, uh, it doesn't right. attract the brightest and best in, in Canada, at least, the prison that I was in. Uh, we had a lot of people who had uh, lost their jobs in other law enforcement uh, Agencies, for one reason or another, ended up getting a job in the prisons where nobody would see them very much. They're at a site and out of mind. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And what kind of a job did you do in prison? Uh, well, I had a, a number, a number of things. Uh, you know, I, I spent lots of time cleaning and mopping floors, uh, but I also worked mm-hmm. in the prison library and uh, uh, have a degree in, in jailhouse uh, lawyering. You know, if doing a bit of paperwork. I taught in. Uh, institutional schools as well. That's great. Well, so, so, Ron, how did you get your appeal? How, how did that process happen? Uh, well, when I was originally convicted, uh, the lawyer I had to, for my trial filed a notice of appeal, I think within a week of, of my being convicted, uh, mm-hmm. informed me at that time that it would take probably about a year and a half. Didn't think that a bail application... Uh, after my conviction was worth pursuing, so we didn't. Uh, but then that lawyer just kind of sat on the file and didn't do much with it. He had lost the original uh, trial and wasn't quite sure how to get his head around conducting the appeal. Uh, back in the 80s, we had to wait a year to a year and a half for transcripts of the original appeal to be typed up manually. 
So there would be a record mm-hmm. for the appeal court to look at. And the right. other complication was that I had paid my own way in between my family and I. We had paid over $100,000 in legal fees uh, back in the late 80s getting to prison and had no money left right. to, uh, to work on on the appeal work. So my okay. lawyer sat on on my file for close to four years, sent me a little letter one day saying he was finding it. I think the words were increasingly difficult to find the time to work on my appeal, and perhaps I should uh, find somebody else. Okay. Uh, and that process now, at that point, I'm a 1,000 miles away in a maximum security prison with limited resources. Uh, that took me a year and a half or so to find a second lawyer who had been a, a senior partner to the first one. They were now with two different mm-hmm. firms. Uh, the second guy sat on the uh, on the file for another three years, wrote me numerous letters telling me he had uh, this done and that done, gave me specific dates that he'd be to the prison to visit me, and sometimes I didn't get those letters till after the dates, but he never did actually show up. So over the seven, first seven years or so I'm in there, I'm, I'm collecting all these letters from lawyers uh, about what's being done or a promise to being done, but no real activity being done. Uh, seven years right. in, I got the a few papers together, filed my own appeal factum, and asked the court to set a, the appeal court to set a date for the hearing. Well, of course, they wrote me back and told me this was a serious matter, and they understood I was represented and I shouldn't be trying to represent myself. And mm-hmm. so I, I corresponded back and forth with the courts for. Uh, I went through three chief justices of the appellate court in, in the jurisdiction I was dealing with during the period of time I was corresponding back and forth with them. At that time, they didn't have rules in place to monitor the flow of cases through their own courts. It was kind of up to the uh, prisoner to uh, to pursue their own appeal, and, and if they didn't, then the case just kind of sat there in, in limbo. Eventually, about seven, seven and a half years in, I was contacted by a, a junior lawyer who had worked for the other two along the way, quite horrified with the, the lack of, of attention my case had received, and suggesting to me that there was somebody in the same building that, that she worked in who did appellate work, and would I mind them making the contact? And I said, sure. I told the guy to give me a call. The guy did. Uh, within a month, I was brought back from the maximum security prison that I was in, a thousand miles away from the from the court that I had to deal with back to a local jail so we could meet at least. And uh, uh, six months later, then he had my appeal done. So, And you want to yeah. give his name because that sounds like we need to tell people about him. Uh, Jerome Kennedy is his name. Jerome uh, Kennedy. Since, uh, since Jerome did my appeal back in the late 90s, uh, he also did my trial in, in 99 that led to my exoneration in, in 2000. Uh, Jerome... Uh, entered politics for a seven or eight year period. He was justice minister in, in Newfoundland for a while, finance minister, and he's back in private practice these days, but he also sits on the board of directors of the organization that I'm with. The oh, well, that's why I know wrongly convicted, so. Yeah, I read, a, I read a statement that he gave uh, and something oh, I, I read about your case. Yeah, well, um, okay, so he took he took your case on and, and literally, in a and a pretty quick turnaround got you an appeal. Uh, yes, fairly fairly quickly. Uh, um, after eight and a half years, it didn't seem quick, but from the time he took it on, uh, right. he had the work done. And, and I was always told that my appeal wasn't all that complex. 
All we had to do was, was get a number of experts who disagreed with the first one, tell the court that this would have made a difference had the jury heard all of this information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a number of other mistakes made during the trial, but that was the crux of, of the matter, that there was no crime committed here. Somebody shouldn't be serving a life sentence for it. Right. So the, uh, the issue, the issue of all of those delays, though, and the inaction by some of the lawyers, only compounded the original mistake, of course. So that after right, I was acquitted, uh, I started uh, looking for compensation for the uh, the time that I'd been away from my family. My family and I sued the uh, sued the government uh, for that because, again, there's no formal mechanism in the Canadian Criminal Code to deal with compensating people wrongly convicted or or addressing the the issue. Mm-hmm. So we started civil proceedings. We also called for a public inquiry. One of the things that Canada had done in the past in other cases is conduct public inquiries looking into the causes of particular wrongful convictions. I'm not sure that my case alone would have resulted in a public inquiry. As it happened, there were two other cases in the same jurisdiction within a five-year period that had also been wrongly convicted. Uh, one of them before mine and, and one of them after mine. But we were all exonerated within a, a 17, 18-month period. So that the three of us together start clamoring for uh, saying there's something wrong in a tiny jurisdiction like Newfoundland where half a million people live, uh, and some years you don't have a murder charge at all. If you get three of them wrong within a five-year time span, then maybe it's time that we have a closer look at where the problems lie here. Yeah, so the public inquiry sure. was convened. Now, that involves a great deal of time and, and money. It's a two- or three-year process. Uh, they appointed my case. They, they appointed the, uh, the late Mr. Justice Antonio Lemaire, who had once been the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, to conduct this review. And that say, took uh, two or three years of hearings and uh, hearing evidence on, on all three of these cases. And then they conduct hmm. uh, a review of all that information. They compile a report with numerous recommendations, some of which get acted on, others uh, sit on the shelf. Unfortunately, as, as good as the public inquiry system is, it doesn't have the teeth to enforce their recommendations. They make recommendations to government and, and hope that things change. Uh, in my case, a number of things did change. The Court of Appeal in particular now has rules in place to monitor cases uh, flowing through their court that uh, delays like happened in my case that are brought to their attention won't be ignored the way they were back in the in the oh, 80s and good. 90s when, when my case was. Yeah, what other changes have been made from your case? Uh, from from my case, that was probably among the the larger cases. From the other two, there were some disclosure matters that were were highlighted. Uh, they've revised the. Uh, the instruction manual for crown prosecutors in the uh, in the Newfoundland jurisdiction, so that you would no longer have a case going to trial with the local hospital pathologist giving an opinion, without having that at least uh, second checked by somebody who was board certified and was actually uh, an expert in that field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, I, I have a question. When we come back, we're going we're to need to take another break, Ron. But I uh, have a question about: Was there any? Uh, misconduct by the prosecutor of the police department. Think about that and we'll uh, take a break here. We've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. (laughs) 
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Strongly convicted exoneree Ron Dalton is my guest today from Canada. He was convicted in Canada, which I think many U.S. citizens, that's not our only listeners here, but many U.S. citizens might be surprised at that. And so, Ron, I asked you just before break, was there any kind of misconduct in your case that uh, applied to uh, getting your appeal overturned? Uh, At at the appeal level... uh I guess the misconduct from the prosecutor's point of view would would be uh, being complicit in uh, in letting things drag on for seven or eight years because I was writing the prosecution service as well as writing the courts and and the justice minister and everyone else I could think of uh, during Mm -hmm. the time I was in prison. When we went to the retrial, uh, we were well prepared. Uh, uh, Mr. Kennedy, my, my lawyer, will tell you that he had a different client in the retrial in 99 than we had in the original trial in 89 because I was much more aware of what was going on. I was much more involved. He used to refer to me as co-counsel during the the trial. But prior to the retrial, what we had done is we had amassed a dozen uh, opinions from forensic experts around the world, a couple of emergency room doctors uh, relating to what went on at the hospital that night, all of whom said that the the Crown's original theory that this was a homicide was wrong. And we took the unusual step of disclosing all of that to the Crown in advance. Normally, the defense, you know, saves their ammunition for a trial, and, and they towed out all these experts to say, you're wrong, and let the jury decide it. We right. gave them everything and said, here, you go find experts that uh, disagree with our guys or that support your original uh, opinion, and uh-huh. we'll go to trial. But really, do you want to do this if we've got nine pathologists and two or three emergency room doctors all saying that you're wrong? Are, are we wasting everybody's time and money having a retrial? Because basically we, we took the position that the outcome was, was pretty much foregone. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, My original trial in 1989 lasted six weeks. My retrial lasted nine months, which will give you an idea of the... uh, of the difference in, in scale and, and scope and, and Nine the original months? trial we called one expert, they called one, and, and the jury was left to decide between the two. At the retrial, we called a dozen. They still called the first one. So it was a bit of overkill, uh, perhaps at the second trial, but we weren't taking any chances. But armed with all of that information in advance, the Crown still decided they wanted to go back and do a retrial and take their chances that our 12 experts uh, could be... Uh, you know, outgunned by their one who wasn't an expert in the first place. Astonishing. So that kind of smacks of, of a bit of uh, abuse of authority and, and uh, overzealous prosecution uh, mm-hmm. is the kindest thing you can say about it. Now, we, we took the position later that they were really more concerned about civil liability because at that point I had been locked up for nine years and, and somebody was going to have to pay a price down the road for that unless they won a retrial. But, of course, and- the criminal justice system... Uh, you know, civil implications shouldn't come into play. And Ron, the appeal was granted on what on what claim? Uh, the the appeal was granted on on the, a number of claims. The biggest one being that is, uh, if our experts, because I think we presented three or four experts at the appeal stage, we presented a dozen at the at the trial stage later. But mm-hmm. at the appeal stage, we gave the Supreme Court justices uh, four expert opinions, saying that the original. Uh, Crown uh, opinion was wrong, mm-hmm. and basically okay. the the appeal was granted on the basis that if that was wrong, then there was no trial, there was no crime committed, and therefore there should never have even been a, a trial. But if that information had been in front of the original jury, then there's a probability, or at least a possibility, that the verdict would have been different. Right. Now the appeal court judges did not go the, the distance of uh, substituting their opinion. For the original jury opinion, they simply ordered a new trial and said if the Crown wishes to proceed, then they have that right. Ron, did um, after the original trial, did your attorney or anybody talk to the jurors? Well, in, in Canada, we, we are not allowed really to question uh, jury deliberations. Oh, okay. In, in the U.S., you'll often see people writing books about what went on in, in high-profile cases, and mm-hmm. they'll talk about the jury deliberations. But in, in Canada, the, our deliberations are kept much more secret than that, So we, we, if, which is the real reason that appeal courts are reluctant to substitute their opinions for that of the findings of the jury, because they can't say for sure what the jury based their findings on. Now, it's pretty obvious in a case like mine that the, they went with the, you know, the Crown's expert called at the original right. trial right. versus so our expert. On, on either trial, did you have an investigator? Uh, on the second trial we did, but there wasn't uh, a much private investigation work to do. Our investigators tend to be, uh, tended to be more of expert opinions. Mm-hmm. We, we mm-hmm. had a number, of, and say they were the world class, the guys who literally wrote the textbooks from all around the world. And Mr. Kennedy traveled all around the world meeting with these people before he brought them to Canada to, to testify. And we brought some in from across parts of Canada as well. But it wasn't really uh, uh, investigative work per se, you know, we weren't uh, tailing suspects, and there was no other suspects to to be looking for. We've done cases in Canada, a number of them, where to exonerate somebody, we've actually had to find and prove that they had the wrong person, and and we've actually led to convictions of people who should have been convicted originally. Uh Uh-huh. 
But in, in my case, it was a, a case where no crime had been committed. So there right. wasn't much investigative work to do. Uh, the disclosure rules, however, had changed a lot in the 10-year period between my original trial in 1988 and the subsequent trial in, in 99 and 2000. Uh, so and we got a lot more disclosure second time around. We saw a lot more of the police notes than we had seen originally. Oh, okay. And so in we Canada... Stuff, so we, we, we were much better armed at the second trial, but primarily it was the expert opinions that, that carried the day. Okay, so in, in people, Canada... A dozen world-class in, experts stand up and say there's no crime committed here. Uh, in Canada, you're not... One, one hospital <laughs> pathologist uh, from a dozen years ago saying that he still thinks he's right. It wasn't that difficult for the jury, I don't think, in the end. Yeah. In Canada, you're not entitled to get all of the discovery on your case, all of the police notes We, we are that? at this stage, uh, but there was a significant court decision uh, in 85, I think, that was hadn't really been implemented very much in my by the time of my original trial. It's a Stinchcombe case, and Mr. Justice uh, John Sapinka from the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that you're entitled to disclosure at, at virtually all stages of the criminal yeah. process. But at one time in Canada, a police officer would appear on the stand, would testify, refer to his notes for clarification, and put the notes back in his pocket, and you would never have seen those notes. Oh, my goodness. And when we did get to see all of that stuff 10 years after the original trial, uh, it opened our eyes to a lot of what was going on you know, behind the scenes. The, the police had a lot of misgivings that they weren't sharing with the court at my original trial. People were aware that this was a questionable conviction, and, and there was no evidence uh, apart from this one opinion to support it. Well, you know, you can you can kind of look at, kind of maybe look into the minds of the law enforcement guys. Here's a community that never has has very low crime, probably probably has little crime at all. Uh, never had a trial, one homicide, and this is this is hot. I mean, this is something they want to get their teeth into, and and they're out for blood, probably. Well, that, that's <laughs> part of it, of course. Now, it's a, it's a mixed blessing uh, not to have a high crime rate. You know, everybody's pleased that uh, in the jurisdiction of Newfoundland, particularly back in, in the 80s, there would be years where there was no homicides at all, which is a good thing. The downside mm-hmm. of that is you don't develop much expertise in dealing with homicides. You don't have yeah. trained forensic pathologists who who see gunshots and stabbings and, and other forms of violence on a regular basis to develop an expertise to know what it looks like, to be able to distinguish mm-hmm. between accidental deaths and, and uh, deaths by homicide. So it's, uh, the, the Canadian experience is, is a bit different. Uh, uh, I think our Canadian prison population is currently around 41,000, uh, whereas you know in the U.S. the population is someplace in the 2.2 million range. Uh, now, mm-hmm. partly, of course, because the U.S. population is almost 10 times the size of Canada, but proportionately, we incarcerate 118 people per 100,000, uh, and in the U.S. incarcerates, you know, 716 per 100,000, I think, is the figures I last looked at. And, Ron, I saw so, something you you had said and, and something I read over your case, that you said you and the others that um, are have been exonerated, would have faced the death penalty had Canada had the death penalty at the time. Is that true? Well, that, that's one of the, the biggest distinctions, of course. Uh, the last uh, execution in Canada was held in 1962. Uh-huh. We only ever had hanging as a, as a method of execution. We didn't abolish the death penalty until 1976, 
but we administer a, a national criminal code there, so we abolish it for the entire country at the same time. Mm-hmm. But even in 76, it, it had been 14 years that uh, we weren't using the death penalty, even though it was still on the books. So you believe that if the death penalty was in place now, or at the time you were convicted, you would have received a sentence of death? Um, not necessarily. It's, okay. It would be un- unfair to say that, because even okay. when we did have a death penalty, we were reserving it usually uh, for uh, um, homicides the- involving police officers or okay. multiple multiple uh, homicides or people with, with uh, long records of violence and stuff. So a case like mine where you had somebody with a white-collar background, no criminal, previous criminal record and stuff, probably wouldn't have been sentenced to death. Uh, but one of the cases that uh, our organization has overturned, and it took us 49 and a half years to do it, uh, was that of a 14-year-old boy who hmm. in 1959 had been sentenced to hang for the murder of a 12-year-old classmate in his, in his school. What was his name? Uh, Stephen Truscott is the name. Stephen Truscott. Wow. And 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 you were able to get that overturned? We were able to get that overturned, and and not only that, Mr. Truscott, uh, who was almost 60 years old by the time this happened, uh, received some compensation for for what had transpired in his case. But his was a case where a 14-year-old child, uh, in the late 50s this was, now of course a little different era, had been sentenced Mm -hmm. to death. And the only reason that execution was not carried out was the Canadian Parliament, the Cabinet of the Day, uh, received so many letters from largely women across the country in the women's institutes and, and stuff who said, no matter what's happened, you can't go killing a 14-year-old child. They mm-hmm. had no question about the uh, propriety of his conviction. They never questioned that. They just thought that politically it, it wouldn't sit well to execute a 14-year-old child, so they spared mm-hmm. his life and gave him a life sentence instead. Right. You know, Ron, I'm just thinking that the the true message of what I'm hearing from you and from your story, your own story and stories of others is tenacity. You know? Well, that's, you, one, of, that's one of the things. And, and uh, again, one of the blessings that I've uh, leaned on over the years is that I was the one person who knew I was right. innocent. Right. I had family and, and lawyers and, and all kinds of people who supported me over the years and, and appreciated it all. But at the end of the day, the one thing that I could lay my head down at night, whether it was in a prison or any place else, and know is that I had not killed my wife. Right. right. The world wasn't unfolding the way I wanted it to, uh, you know, in, in terms of a lot of things. But at least I, I had that sure and certain knowledge that I was innocent. And, and I've talked to a number of, of exonerees, both in, in the U.S. and in Canada. I, I uh, often attend the annual uh, uh, meeting that... The Innocence Networks have here, and the latest one was in Orlando last year, and mm-hmm. I met some wonderful people there, a lot of them who had put in 25 and 30 years and made me look like a, a short-timer, many <laughs> of whom had come off of death row, yeah. uh, who kind of yeah. uh, made peace with, with things just knowing that they were innocent. That's all that they couldn't take from you. Right. Yeah. They can lock up your body and play with your mind and all that kind of stuff, but uh, they sure. can't touch that sure and certain knowledge that you have. And sometimes that's all you have. So you have to make sure that's enough. 
And you had something additional too that some people don't have, and that you had a supportive family around you. Well, that made a big a big difference for sure. Yeah. It made yeah. it easier. Uh, it, it made it a little more difficult in, in some respects. You know, you had that much more to lose, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, of those three individuals in our jurisdiction, one of the guys spent six and a half years in the same prison I was in, and he would tell me later. Uh, he said, "I used to think that." The, that uh, Dalton lost more than I did because he had the family and all that sort of stuff that he didn't. But I, yeah. you know, I would look at him and say perhaps he had lost more because he uh, he had been in and out of the system for most of his life and, yeah. and didn't have the uh, the same world experiences to know when he was getting. Uh, well, you know, everybody loses. Everybody loses. The families yeah, there, there, lose. There are no they, winners in, yeah. in this situation. That's right. Uh, you know, Ron, we're, we're at the end of our hour. I thank you for your insight and for joining the show today. It's uh, really, your story is compelling, one that a lot of people need to hear. <laughs> and I well, just, I really appreciate it. One, one of those tragic things that can happen to anybody, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. We tend to think this only hits marginalized uh, communities yeah. and, and people living on the edge of, of the, the criminal world someplace that get the get drawn into this and sometimes they say well they should have been locked up for something else anyway so it's not such a bad thing and I've heard people say that uh, yep. in reference to the Canadian death penalty situation that uh, I know we'd get a few wrong but we should still have one you know I know <laughs> such, such crazy thinking but uh, anyway we need to go thank you so much and uh, thanks for our, my great sponsors PI Magazine Trade Magazine for Private Investigators and to IRB Search a proprietary data provider for legal professionals Folks, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories about real investigations and about people like Ron Dalton. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.